Welcome to the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. The rise of AI presents important legal and ethical challenges for society. In this podcast, we invite leaders from different industries and creators of new AI to debate the big questions. This is the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. Okay, everybody, uh, welcome to today's webinar. We're here to talk about COVID-19 and the future of work. We have two great panelists from the APAC region, and I will introduce them shortly. But I want to start off a little bit with our mission statement here at AI Asia Pacific. Artificial intelligence holds enormous potential to improve the world we live in. It also poses some of the toughest challenges society has ever faced. These challenges should be considered to affect the international community as a whole. And in this context, investing in avenues for dialogue on AI is critical to ensuring that its development is in line with what we want. Our mission is to contribute in opening the path to trustworthy AI in the Asia Pacific region. So this event here today is the second in a series of dialogues about what is coming in our near future and we hope to spark a discussion around how we should responsibly shape that future. And as we get started, I wanna point out that the UN has just posted an article on COVID-19 and the future of work yesterday. So we're right on the mark with a very timely topic that has a broad impact to the entire world. You can find that article on the UN News website. So in terms of the format today, we'll first have some introductions for our panelists. Uh, they'll then have an open discussion on the future of work. This discussion will be shaped by a few general themes that we will show a little bit later. And then we'll have a question and answer period. Now, uh, we, may, uh, we may mix the question and answer period with the discussion, depending on how the panelists feel. So feel free to enter your questions at any time. Um, and uh, if we don't get to them during the discussion, we'll, we will address them afterwards. So I will start out with the introductions. Michelle is the head of IO, which means Industrial Organizational Psychology for APAC EMEA at Pymetrics. And that's where she works with governments in APAC to ensure AI algorithms related to recruiting and talent management are deployed in a fair and ethical way. For those of you like myself who were not aware previously of what an IO psychologist does, it's a person who studies the psychology of the workforce and professional organizations in order to understand how to make them more effective. Michelle has a Master's of Applied Psychology from Monash University. Vincent is the co-founder of FutureWork Studio, a global tech and consulting company that is helping companies adapt to new and more agile ways of operating. He comes from a background of management consulting at McKinsey, working in large-scale corporate transformation holds an MBA from the University of Melbourne and was previously an officer in the French Navy. So with that, I will move things over to the panelists as we segue into our dialogue. And I guess I will just quickly ask them to add a little bit of color to the introduction um, and talk about how you found yourself uh, 
in this discussion today and what brought you to it. Would you guys like to start? Yeah, absolutely. You want to go, Michelle? Or? Yeah, I can go first. Thanks, thanks, Vincent. Thanks, William. Uh, so, just perhaps a little bit of um, background around further background around Pymetrics um, before we get started, and that will be a nice segue into you know how we're talking today. So, uh, essentially, what Pymetrics is is a talent matching platform that supports organisations to be able to manage their their talent needs across the entire talent life cycle from the perspective of really understanding the behaviours and the behavioural footprint uh, and, um, and platform that you know, individuals actually um, adopt and have and this enables organisations to make data-driven decisions around you know, their, their people and the implications for that in terms of the, the world of work. So we work very closely with organisations uh, in terms of helping them understand their people and then make you know data-driven decisions as I mentioned and we've been having a lot of conversations with clients as they're now needing to pivot with, with COVID-19 and we have quite a you know long-standing relationship with the AI Asia Pacific Institute and um, you know it was I guess a sort of a mutual interest that you know that brought us here today to be this topic as you know we've been receiving more and more queries from from clients on a regular basis as to how they can actually you know navigate their way through through COVID-19 and beyond. So Vincent over to you. Yeah thanks Michelle. Um, so hello everyone. Um, so as um, William um, said uh, we, we co-founded FutureWork Studio with uh, Joanne Fair uh, who's actually in the audience today uh, 18 months ago and, and our mission really is um, to um, help organizations with uh, you know, dealing with, with the future of work, obviously, but also uh, helping employees uh, adopting new technologies uh, and have more fulfilled careers uh, through the different platforms that we have. Um, so Kelly, uh, who's uh, one of the member of the uh, AI Asia Pacific Institute, reached out to me uh, and, and see if I wanted to talk uh, about the implication of the future of work and. And I think that's, that's critical, like William said, it's very timely with COVID, uh, what we're uh, seeing at the moment. Uh, and I think more people um, are interested in that topic. I think before COVID, it was an interesting topic and quite important, but not that urgent. Uh, and I think overnight we've been brought into it. Uh, and now everyone is you know, starting to work from home and more flexibly and technology is gonna replace some of the tasks we do. What does that all mean for careers that we had for you know, 20, 30 years for some people, and how can we continue to thrive in this new environment? So a very interesting topic, uh, and you know, very interesting to uh, debate that with Michelle, uh, that I met uh, earlier this week, and we had a really good conversation around this already. Great, thank you so much. And so I'm just going to display the topics, it's just uh, that we talked about before, let's see. So here we go. Um, again, we're talking about the next wave of innovation. The four topics that we have uh, on the table for today. Number one, working from home versus working anywhere. Number two, who owns the talent? Number three, diversity and inclusion. And number four, mindset. 
So with those in mind, I'll open it up to you guys to start out. Thanks. Thanks, William. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're keen, this will be a bit of a fluid discussion, I think, <laughs> between myself and, and Vincent. And, and as William mentioned, if anyone has any questions throughout, please, you know, feel free to post and um, William, feel free to interrupt us. Otherwise, I think what we found earlier in the week is that Vincent and I can, can uh, talk underwater. And um, so we're, but we're very happy to, you know, answer questions uh, along, along the way. Um, and I think, you know, that first topic that you, that you popped up on the screen there around, you know, working from home versus working anywhere, I think that was sort of where our conversation started, you know, earlier in the week when, when we caught up because, you know, for, for many individuals that has probably been the biggest shift and for organisations as well where, you know, overnight they really had to pivot and, and you know, move their people to, you know, to their homes, you know, as part of, you know, lockdown measures. And so what that meant was for some organisations, that was quite an easy and quick pivot. Um, for others, uh, it was, you know, a, a lot more challenging. And, um, and, and what, you know, has sort of uncovered, been uncovered, certainly from my perspective anyway, is this whole now conversation around, well, are people actually working as hard as when they were working in the office? You know, I think there's there's some there's some potential um, you know initial sort of concern from from some leaders around. I can't see what's happening. How can I actually have control over what's going on? How do I actually know that the you know that the work is is being done? And um, so, Vincent, I'll kind of hand over to you to kind of add. You know, that was sort of where we sort of started around. You know, um, I guess kind of almost exposing some of the leadership challenges that perhaps were already there. And now, you know, we're seeing them brought to the fore um, with, you know, with COVID-19. No, absolutely. And, and I think it, it was a shock for everyone, obviously, because a, a lot of, uh, you know, companies uh, either were born completely digital and native, like Pymatrix, which works to you and plenty of others. And for us, it was no, no drama overnight. We, we were already working remotely. Um, yeah. I think for, for a lot of others, uh, it, there was a maturity stage and everyone was kind of, uh, you know, on, on the maturity stage going to, to be at some point more flexible. Uh, and then the fact that overnight was very, um, very uh, complicated. And we had a, a lot of conversations with, uh, with our clients that, that moved at different pace, uh, but also for people, for managers, right? So people that have uh, traditionally had uh, a task to do or, um, you know, a problem to solve and they could see and physically see their people do those tasks and manage them in very different ways. All of a sudden using technologies that some of them were not really used to, uh, you know, Zoom, Teams, uh, very new for a lot of people in corporate, uh, but also working from your living room, you know, uh, with your kids, uh, with your pets, with uh, everything else. Uh, and the stress, of course, of COVID, uh, that adds uh, on top of this the, the uncertainty. Um, we'll discuss this further, but uh, I think this this move from from very linear uh, way of thinking to to very exponential, or like we don't know what tomorrow is is about, and it's very exponential. Like COVID, uh, you know, at the very start, uh, people were were not really taking that seriously because it was a few cases. So in a linear world, why would we worry? But in exponential one, obviously. Uh, it, it goes very, very fast. So I think if we look at our part of the world, we're probably in the best part of the world between Singapore, Australia, and New Zealand, uh, and other parts of Asia. Um, the, the, the move 
we were already a lot lot more digital savvy than you know Europe or the US to some extent. Uh, but also our government have done really well to uh, to put us into lockdown. People complied, uh, and and we're also quite isolated as well uh, in terms of Australia and New Zealand. So, um, so so that was good. But but a lot of challenges, like Michelle said, uh, in terms of working from home and, and managing people. And the last thing I would uh, I would say on, on that particular thing was this morning I was listening on the on the radio and in New Zealand they've done a survey because uh, now we're back to uh, we call level two which is where we're back to work to some extent in a building. We can gather up to 100. Uh, so, so it's a bit different to, to what Australia is in at the moment. And Singapore, I know uh, you guys are still have another month, I think, in, in lockdown. Um, but the survey uh, came back in 78 or 79% said they were more productive working from yes. home than in the office, which again, uh, you know, if we were to do this experiment and say to everyone, uh, you have to go from home, but hold on, you have to go with your kids, with uh, your family, and uh, overnight, people would say, no, this experiment will never work. Uh, we will not be productive. And in fact, uh, the reality is, is quite different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I completely agree. And I think that, you know, this sort of flexibility is something that people have been asking for for a long time, right? I want the flexibility to be able to really actually work from anywhere. And I think that what COVID has done is a challenge some of the misconceptions around how work should be done and when it should be done. Um, and really now we're seeing conversations around let's have four day work weeks. I think Jacinda Arden was talking about that. Um, you know, why do we need five day work weeks? Let's go for four days. Um, because we know that people are working longer hours because they are juggling more of their personal life, you know, whilst, you know, they're, they're actually working. Um, you know, there's also, um, you know, discussions around actually companies moving to remote first, right? And then having offices. I read a really nice phrase. It was that offices in the future are for camaraderie rather than accountability. And I think that that's a really nice way of looking at it, right? Because it really changes the dynamic that actually we don't all have to trudge to work every day in the same location and go back home to actually deliver work. It's around what you produce, not where or when. Right? And I think that's what we're seeing that we're actually, we can do this, right? We are actually mature people and people want to deliver work. And so some of the restrictions that we've had, uh, funnily enough, the restrictions of COVID have actually highlighted the restrictions that we've put on ourselves around how work is done, which probably aren't really necessary. Um, there's a whole field of around, whether you believe it or not, around chronotypes, right? Where people, are, you know, based on their own sort of personal rhythms, you know, some are more, as some people say, I'm more of a morning person. Others say I'm more of an evening person, right? So when people do work, actually, they can do it when it suits them, as long as the work is um, is delivered. So I think we're seeing a lot of that, um, you know, come through as well um, in terms of people's thinking. Um, and then I think what that does is it challenges the existing hierarchies and structures. And we were sort of talking about this, you know, earlier in the week, um, Vincent, as well, around why does the organisation need to be structured in the way that it is structured today? you know, we, things can actually change and organisations can still be really productive. I think one of the things that does come out of this more remote working, and we've seen this at, at Pymetrics as well, is you have to be more purposeful around the connections within the team. So previously when you're in the office, you know, you might be by the water cooler in the kitchen and you have these intercedental conversations. The, the connection between people now needs to be orchestrated. You know, you yes. need to set up times and, and you can still have jovial, you know, conversations, but you actually have to make that time 
um, in your in your diary. Um, so leaders need to think about that as they move forward with COVID. If there is more remote working, well, how do we stay connected with our employees? Yeah, and absolutely. Just, and and I think even uh, you know fundamentally the way we are structured. Uh, that again works well if the challenges are, are kind of known, if you're mostly in person, uh, needs to be rethought. Uh, even, you know, the, the concept of a team, a finite amount of people uh, working in your team for a set period of time within a job description. Uh, if the challenges are changing, uh, if you can access a lot of people and the geography or the location is not really an issue, uh, what would that mean for the way you work? You know, could I work, uh, you know, uh, on projects across multiple industries or or companies like some consultant do already, uh, or yes. freelancers or, or, or others? Could I, you know, work two days a week uh, in, in two different companies and then have another day where where I do something else that I want within the community? And why would that not be possible? Well, the the the, the first reason for this is not so much technology, but it's mindset. Right? Correct. People, I see people, and, and look, we're, we're all guilty of that, but everyone wants to go back to the equilibrium, which is, you know, we've been taught to do this. We've been taught since we we're very little to go in a classroom with, with plenty of others, and those are the roles. Then we graduate, and, you know, it's the same thing, uh, or we move into the, 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 the job. Uh, it's the same thing. We go somewhere, and we take orders. Uh, yeah. You know, no matter how senior, you take orders. Um, yeah. And you don't really choose uh, what you want to do, although, you know, your passion when you're 18 or 20 are very different than when you're 30 or 40. Uh, sometimes you're still stuck in the same uh, job. And actually earlier this week, uh, Joe and I were talking to uh, one of our clients in an energy company. And some of the, uh, some of the employees uh, were telling us, you know, we're, we're 30, but we started as electrician. Uh, and all the, you know, uh, the, the, the more mature people in our organization are saying, well, that's your career, you know, 30 years, 40 years in electrician. And they say, no, I really don't want to do this. So I, I'm going to stay here for another year and suffer through this. And then I'm going to move into a, a different job. I might do an MBA. I might do something else to just enable me to get somewhere else. Uh, and I think organizations can, can capture this. Uh, you know, I think COVID is, is both a blessing and a curse. Uh, it's a massive curse in terms of health, obviously. But I think it's a blessing in terms of the way we work. And, and we should seize the opportunity to not go back to normal. Michelle and I were, were talking earlier this week about simple things like, you know, uh, our local cafe uh, here uh, and, and probably the same for, for Michelle in Australia, but um, was not online at all. Uh, and because of COVID, when we were in New Zealand at level three, which you, know, you could uh, order things and cafes could open again, they all went online. But they went online until level two. And then when, you know, one morning I was like, oh, I'm just going to order my coffee because I really liked to do this. Uh, just order it and, and pick it up. Uh, it, it was not available anymore. And I asked them, I said, what's the problem? And they said, oh, you know, it was just for COVID. Now we're back to, you know, uh, physical, no digital. And I said, but why? <laughs> they didn't really answer. <laughs> you know, they didn't really have a quite, they were kind of looking at me like, why would we keep something digital? You know, no one's asking for it. Um, and again, I think that, that that's a bit of an issue. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's around, you know, embracing it's you know, embracing the opportunity that COVID has provided us to actually accelerate digitization and move things in the direction in terms of what the consumer actually wants, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think 
that, you know, I'm hoping anyway that a lot of the moves that we've made, you know, we've seen, I mean, we've seen so much change in terms of, you know, we're seeing now, for example, Bunnings is one of our, um, you know, big hardware stores in, in Australia and now it has like a click and collect, right? Normally you'd have to go into this big cold warehouse and pick out all your tools and plants and things. Now you can just order online, drive by, they put it in the boot of your car and off you go. Um, and I'd like to see those sorts of services maintained. Mm -hmm. One of the things that this sort of digitization provides is actually greater inclusivity for people, right? So there are a lot of people who may have health, you know, concerns on an ongoing basis, let's put COVID aside, but um, they may have disabilities, et cetera, that all of this more digitized functionality can actually make our world more inclusive for those individuals in terms of, you know, being able to support them and, and, and giving them access to the types of things that, you know, that they need. And, we um, have um, a we have a, a client at the moment. We have a, a new product that we recently launched called Workforce Insights, where you can actually understand the behavioural makeup of your teams and you know different mm -hmm. in different roles, etc., and different job levels, different locations, and those sorts of things, so that you can start to understand, you know, what does this how does this team function versus this, etc. And one of our clients has um, asked us for support around how can I look at that data and actually provide people support for working from home because we expect that this is going to continue, right? So let's understand how can we best support people based on their preferences and, and their traits. So I think that that's quite, quite powerful. And, you know, this whole notion also of, you know, as we move through and think about how we support workforces is around, you know, talent marketplaces are really taking off, right? We've certainly um, accelerated, you know, our work around, you know, our talent marketplace to support people who've been, uh, who've lost their jobs due to mm -hmm. COVID. And, you know, we help them to redeploy, you know, into rather other roles and, and opportunities. And our focus, because of what we measure, is, you know, very much around aptitudes in terms of behaviours. Um, but that skills component is also really important as well. And I think that, um, you know, when it comes to the behavioural profile of people, those, you know, those behaviours don't tend to shift very much. And so we're seeing a real, you know, a real focus as well in terms of clients talking about, well, how can I understand, you know, whether my people have grit, whether they have learning agility and how can I support them and move them, you know, more internally or more easily internally in a data-driven way. And I think, you know, some of the um, work that you're doing, Vincent, you know, very much aligns around how do people move to the opportunities that they're interested in, but that also they're a fit for in the organisation. Yeah, absolutely. And... Uh, I, I mean, our, our internal platform, which we call the Hive, uh, really does this. And we talked about this when we met with Michelle. There's a lot of complementarity. Uh, but what we're seeing through the experiment that we're doing is really um, letting employees uh, decide which project they do has had tremendous impact, uh, both in terms of the organization, uh, saying, well, the first thing is uh, engagement. You know, people are more engaged because they can pick things. And that's the first time they can actually decide to not be shoulder tap, but to you know, be on the other side and say, hey, raise my hand, I can, I'm, I'm keen to do this. But also, uh, you know, more practically, uh, less reliance on external contractors, consultants to do the work because your workforce can actually do it. Uh, you just don't know if you go top down, who can do it when they are valuable and if they're willing to do it to stop. Um, but when you start uh, enabling this uh, very simply, um, people, uh, the, people start to, to, to really uh, you know, unlock 
those capabilities that they have that no one had. And from an HR perspective, you know, being able to see for the first time what your workforce is really able to do is fascinating. Uh, we were on a call earlier with, with a group of companies that we were piloting with. And one of the managers said, uh, you know, during COVID, we've seen because of the urgency, some people uh, working across, uh, you know, uh, teams on things that we would not have believed they could do. But because of the urgency, we just pulled people in. And those people have been better than the people yeah. in the jobs themselves. And so after COVID, the, you know, after, um, now that we're back in, in, in Canada Law 2, some of them have been offered, you know, roles in those areas uh, that would have never been possible before because of the mindset. Again, yes. you're an accountant. What are you doing in marketing? Absolutely. It's, Absolutely. it's not where you should be. So I think it leads us nicely to who owns the work. You know? Yes. And, and, and we've seen uh, Australia, we've seen that in, in New Zealand. I'm sure Singapore is some example as well. Uh, but companies like airlines, right? And I think mm -hmm. we talked about Qantas, talked about Air New Zealand, uh, having to, and, and Virgin, uh, having to uh, do something with their stuff. So a lot of them, unfortunately, uh, you know, got made redundant. But, um, but also, like, how do, how do we redeploy those people? And we've mm -hmm. seen, you know, uh, Countdown, uh, New World here, uh, you know, all, all the others basically coming together, Woolworth, yeah, which is the, the Australian one, um, coming together and say, hey, we need more people. You have people. Can we actually uh, start exchanging? Uh, we've been, uh, you know, in touch with DHBs here. Uh, so large hospitals saying, hey, we need more people. Uh, airline, you have people. Can you just uh, help us uh, for, for a few months? And, and I think this will become, uh, of course, the crisis is, is sparking that. But I think this will become the norm uh, as we go. And in five years, 10 years, people would be like, oh, that's interesting. Companies that were in complete silo competing against others. That's, that's a different concept uh, than today where, uh, where, where there is less of that. And I think, you know, one of the, as you say, rightly say around, the, you know, the challenge is the mindset, right? So if I have a team and I have people working in my team, there's this, almost a sense that they belong to me and the organisation, you know, um, whereas, you know, what we now see is actually their needs. People have been wanting much more flexibility and the ability to move internally and to take on, you know, other opportunities within the organisation. We have many clients who say it's easier for someone in my company to resign and then apply for a job and come back Absolutely. in then to move internally. And that's just, that's just criminal. Um, so, so I think there's that. I think also, you know, one of the challenges in some, you know, in some organizational models where there might be say an equity stake at play, you know, a leader has a team of high performers, they don't want to let them go. That's you know, right. But the, the reality is you don't own these people, you know, and they will, they will vote with their feet and they will move if you don't provide them with opportunities mm. to move internally. And then it's reciprocal, right? If other leaders let their people go and support those, you know, developmental yes. opportunities, which is what we're, you know, the work we do around, you know, internal talent marketplaces within organisations, providing that transparency and the data, you know, the example you gave, I think, is a really great one, Vincent, around, you know, these people who had to move to new projects and are better performers, right? Um, if they looked at their behavioural profile, they might have found that actually their behavioural fit is much better to these jobs That's than right. the people who are in these jobs, right? But it's our mindset that people need certain skills to do the jobs um, in and of themselves, rather than taking into account, you know, what sort of behaviour they actually bring to the job as well. And that's, you know, that's super important too. 
but but also there is uh like to to this point around managers you know um owning their, their people which is an interesting concept uh because what, what so when i was in in corporate and i did a short stint you know two two years less than two years uh but uh but i saw that and, and it was quite interesting where people were very protective of, of their people in terms of not protect like protective in the right way but also sometimes uh a bit too much saying, well, you know, the example you mentioned, I saw that so many times where you advertise a role and then it's way easier to leave the company and, and apply. But the reason for this is because as a manager, when you advertise a role, if someone else is interested, you have to go and talk to their manager and say, yeah. hey, you know, uh, you know, William has <laughs> just talked to me uh, about maybe applying for a job. So, you know, Michelle, uh, are you okay with this? Uh, which, you know, it's quite tricky for William because William might just be interested, might just have a go privately and see if he's keen and, and you know, he, he still wants to be employed, right? So yeah. I, I think I understand the concept, but I think that that's, that's not uh, really helping employees to start with. I think the other element to this is people um, think in terms of one or zero. You know, we're better than, than computers and machines, but actually sometimes we think one zero. You're in my team or you're not. Yes. So I need, I have, I have a best performer. I need that best performer hundred percent of the time. And why, you know, I need hundred percent of the delivery maybe, but it doesn't mean hundred percent of the time. You know, if, if someone can be, can do the work way faster, then great. You know, can do other things. Um, I, I think we need to think differently about this and, and really getting into, uh, it would be nice to be in a world where, where people can pick whatever they do. Uh, but then you assemble teams like, a, you know, like a, a sport team where you, you basically have some, some players that play sometimes. You know, you, you see that in sport. You know, players don't play the full time all the time, right? They're like, well, this one is retired. Let's get out. You know, uh, let's bring someone else. Sometimes it's not yeah. even retired. It's a different mindset, different capability, different skill. Uh, and that's how they win. You know, if we just take a, a, a team and there is no change for three years, can you imagine this? It yes. would be insane. In sport, it would be insane. But in business, it's perfectly normal. I'd like to see a model where, you know, so what the example you gave around, you know, Qantas and Woolworths in particular, you know, in Australia partnering together, um, I'd like to see a model where that flexibility is provided across corporates, right? So it might be, for example, say I work for a bank, um, which I used to work for the ANZ, um, and, you know, I have certain capabilities, but, you know, the organisation itself needs more digital capability, yes. right? So I, you know, will do a secondment or I'll spend a year or two at a, you know, digital organisation mm -hmm. or some sort of tech company, right? Um, and then I come back in and I bring those skills and then I might go out again. And so you're just going to, you know, just get a, a much richer... Yes. talent base in your organization um you know when you're actually facilitating those moves rather than it being left to the individual well i have to resign because they're not going to give me the opportunity internally but if there is some sort of program to facilitate that i think that that would just be yes. a wonderful uh, a wonderful sort of move you know in the future there's too much friction in the current environment to do this therefore the incentive is to stay where you are and keep doing what you do uh I, I think one of the interesting things with Hive that we're doing at the moment that is very close to what you described, which is we're working with 10 companies at the moment. Uh, they are completely independent companies. They're still owned by the same uh, you know, owner, uh, 
but they're very varied. So you have an airport, an energy company, a port. So a lot of different capabilities and, and, and workforce. It's like around three, 4,000 people. Um, but really the, the, the group has said, well, we want people to actually move across those companies, be for a few hours, for a few days, or, or maybe for more as a subcontinent. You know, I was at the airport, but now I'm working at an energy company in a bigger, tougher role, so then I can access the port or, or somewhere else. Because they have those, uh, th those people that they really want to keep. But sometimes a company has 100 people and the role is not that complicated. So most of the time, exactly what you described, people leave the group. Uh, first of all, they don't see that as a group to start with. They see that as their company and we have 100 people. But then when you start being part of something bigger because there's this alliance and there is this ability, so you remove the friction of actually working somewhere else, you gain a lot more in terms of productivity, in terms of engagement, you reduce your cost. It's just a very different way of operating than, uh, than I think a lot of, not a lot, but I think some very uh, courageous leaders will, uh, you know, trial, then we'll get the numbers and then others will follow and it will just become the norm, right? Correct. But I think Correct. we're in this interesting stage. Um, we were talking with Joe uh, a few days ago about, uh, we, we basically believe that the, this revolution around work and this flexibility could be as big as the internet. Yes. Because if you think about the implication of delocalization of the work, it's a massive implication, right? Mm -hmm. And it could be in of itself as big as the internet to some extent. Yes, yeah, I, I agree. I agree completely. And I think the other thing that I think that we still are not very good at in organizations is around part-time work, job mm. sharing, you know, these sorts of alternative structures, which you, you, know, you sort of touched on earlier around why do you need someone 100% of the time? Right now, right. someone might want to work full time and, and do you know a, a number of different internal gigs. Say if we want to use the gig economy, you know, analogy. But I also think it, you know the flexibility of work is really important. So we've seen with COVID um, that about fifty five percent, well, women have made up about fifty five percent of those who have lost their jobs. That's the, they're the figures in Australia. The US seems to be the same. And I think once again, you know, COVID just seems to be highlighting the inadequacies of the way we currently operate, right? Mm -hmm. That, that might've been hidden. So previously um, in, you know, one of my previous roles, I used to look after um, the redeployment and outplacement function. And when I would speak to, you know, vendors in the market that would provide outplacement, they would often say that the first roles that are restructured out in organizations are the part-time jobs, which disproportionately impact women. And so, you know, you have these diversity and inclusion targets that organisations hold dear around we need more women in management, for example, we need diversity at the boardroom table, etc. And even in the, you know, the entry levels as, mm -hmm. as they move up into the organisation. But then you have this leaky bucket, right, where your processes um, are actually, you know, causing, a, a, you know, a disproportionate impact to certain, you know, certain groups. And so you'll never hit your diversity targets. No. And I think this you know, we really do need this sort of disruption around when and, and how people work and how they deliver their, you know, the work that they need to. Um, so I feel very kind of strongly around that whole part-time versus job sharing. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm hoping that, you know, we've seen, as I said, a disproportionate impact to women. I think we're going to have to work very hard as a society to redress right. that balance um, yeah. as we go forward. And I think government could play a, a massive role because, you know, I understand the push to show already jobs and, uh, you know, more construction, but, but most of those jobs are, are mainly dominated by male. Uh, therefore, you know, again, in, encouraging more 
uh, or, or you know widening the, the, the gap even more. Uh, and, and I think everything we, we've been talking about, which is uh, you know more flexibility, should uh, should benefit uh, you know and, and should uh, increase diversity, but only if we really embrace it. You know, yes. only if Correct. we don't just go back to what we knew. And so um, earlier in the week, we, we were on a call with a few companies that have said, look, we've captured everything we've learned through COVID. And I said, well, that's right, we've captured it. What, but what are you doing about it? And that was the big thing to say, well, uh, we don't know how to convince some of our senior uh, leaders or board that actually we were better working like this. You know, um, we, we have companies that, that are, are going back to the office, but in different bubbles. So they have two colors. Uh, so Monday, Monday, Tuesday is one color, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday, everyone's home um, for a bit of time. And people love it. Like, yes. Well, you know, uh, and we, we talk to people in, in, in two different bubbles. And one, one of them, like, oh, it's great because, you know, Monday morning, Tuesday, I, I can just be home and I ease into the week. And then, you know, I, I'm at work. And the other one was like, no, for me, it's the opposite. I love being there Monday, Tuesday, and then I'm, I'm done for the next, you know, five days. And, and productivity was higher. Uh, I think, again, in terms of the one, one zero, it, it's, again, uh, absolutely right for uh, people that are taking maternity or paternity leave. That, well, uh, you know, people might have a year out before they're ready to go full time, but they mm -hmm. might have, you know, six months, seven months. They were like, look, I'm happy to do a few hours. Uh, I just want to do something. It's just not practical. And again, the friction to do this is massive. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked to an Australian company who actually wanted to use Hive to do exactly this and say, mm -hmm. hey, we have a lot of people that we want to keep in touch with, that we want to provide some project. They want to work. The friction is so hard. So it, everything is manual. So, you know, we need to call and get the manager and say, but how, how is that person going to know which task I need them to do? And so people just like, if it's too hard, it's too hard. You know, yeah. it needs to be very simple for this to happen. And then you can start to unlock a, a massive amount of productivity that is just not being utilized because it's too hard to do. And we've got the technology now, right? So I think this is the thing that, you know, through COVID, I mean, we have a lot of, you know, great startups, you know, our focus one of our key focus areas is around fairness, right? And ensuring, you know, our, our clients can hire a diverse set of candidates so that our assessments are fair and not screening out disproportionate, you know, groups of individuals, for example. Um, so, you know, with, for example, um, you know, the technology that you're bringing, the fact that we have video conferencing like, we, like we're on right now, um, you know, there are now so many ways that people can actually connect and, and communicate. And what that actually means also is that it does actually unlock the opportunity for people to not have to be co-located, right? People who want yeah. to live in rural areas. Like I can foresee, and we were talking about this the other My day, yes. that, you know, not everyone will now have to live in the, you know, urban areas. People can actually live further afield and they can do work from, from their homes. And so all of a sudden your talent pool becomes so much broader and so much more yes. diverse, um, which, you know, will only, you know, assist organisations further. But also what, what, what would that do to uh, house prices, right? If you know, the issue with house prices, everyone wants to live in you know the same the same square meter, the, the, the same area close to, to the office. Uh, yeah. Therefore, the price go up. But uh, you know, if you take now the amount of land, Australia, magnificent example, so much land. Uh, you know, New Zealand compared to the population, a lot of land as well. Singapore a bit different. But um, uh, then when people can actually work elsewhere, the, the the opportunity is just massive. And then we talked about you know even the government could think differently about it because, you know, a lot of people will go, yeah, but if, if jobs can be done from anywhere, how are we going to compete globally? 
Uh, you know, if our wages are more expensive in the US, we've already seen, you know, companies said, well, look, if you don't live in the Silicon Valley, your salary will be probably different because the cost of living in Texas or Oregon is very different to Silicon Valley. And, and I think, uh, you know, HR teams, uh, payrolls, leaders need to start thinking about this and say, well, is there a way that, that I can pay a base to, to, to everyone the same? And then maybe different things. So if you want to commute and be in the office, this is what you get. If you work from home, you'll get more money because you need to set up your, your, your office and, and all the rest of it. But thinking creatively about this to enable this. And even, uh, you know, Ms. Chen and I were talking about that when, when we met two days ago, but government could, could put some restrictions and say, well, you know, 60% of your workforce needs to be located in the same country or in the same bubble, right? Then you can have 40% somewhere else. So you can still maintain, uh, you know, your local workforce working uh, in the same country, uh, providing that, uh, that the rules could be enforced. But, uh, but that will be an interesting challenge going forward. Yeah, agree. And I think even, um, you know, the, the events industry as well, you know, I'm thinking about now, um, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people questioning the way that we've done work. So why did I have to travel so much before, right? That was inefficient. And, and um, we, um, I was on a, um, on a webinar with um, the, the CEO from New Zealand for ANZ, and she was talking about the fact that, you know, previously they'd have, you know, regular meetings that would all be in Wellington and everyone had to fly down and, and you wouldn't necessarily always get a huge turnout. Um, and now with COVID, they had to run it, you know, virtually and all of a sudden everyone was there, right? And so once again, from a diversity perspective, inclusion, you know, you're opening it up. So as I was talking about the events industry, you know, events are just hugely expensive, right? And can actually be... Um, quite exclusive, right? There can often be high costs associated yep. with attending those events, with travel and accommodation, et cetera, et cetera. And we're seeing so many virtual events now that I think that that industry will also yes. be disrupted and, and much more inclusive to, to people. So there are so many potential impacts here across yep. industries in so many different mm. ways um, that, you know, yeah, I would be surprised if we kind of ever look the same again. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a good example is... Uh, I had an alumni, uh, you know, meeting that I never go to because it's in Australia and I wouldn't just fly for that. Uh, but now it's online. So, you know, I, I was just dialing and, and see a lot of uh, other colleagues and, and everything that I hadn't seen in, in a long time. Uh, you know, I'm doing this talk in a few hours uh, in, in um, Pacific time. So I would have been, you know, in San Francisco or LA right now, you know, would I have had done this or, or not. Now I just dial in. 3 a.m. just wake up, dial in and, and it's done. So. I absolutely agree. I, I think one of the things to, to, to think about in terms of diversity and inclusion as well is, uh, and, and that's an article that Joe sent me actually uh, just earlier uh, from Harvard, uh, that was looking at the, the difference in, in gender, in culture, when you're on Zoom. Uh, so Zoom is, is quite, you know, in your face, uh, camera on, everyone watching you when you talk. Uh, it, 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 it is uh, quite threatening for, for, for a lot of people. Uh, and, and I think the moderator or, you know, when you have team meetings with a lot of people, ensuring that everyone has the same uh, amount of airtime, uh, that people that are more introvert, uh, you know, can, can type things, of course, but, you know, you don't change the introvert if you're in front of a camera and everyone's looking at you. <laughs> uh, so so I, I think there will be things uh, to do to really unlock that as well, uh, especially as we're starting to see hybrid models. So during the lockdown, everyone was on their computer, uh, you know, one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. 
Uh, and it's easy to have a meeting like this. But the minute you have a group that's in the office and you have four people in a room and you start dialing in, you're back to what it was before. So at the moment, uh, because some clients are back in the office, we've said for all our workshops, we want everyone on their machine. No matter if they're like two, three meters apart, we want everyone on their machine. Because otherwise you create a real very different dynamic where you know, you dial in, there are three jokes in the, t it's very yes. different and you don't connect the same. Yeah. Yeah, agree. And you know, you just well, I think we'll open up for questions in a in a minute. But yeah. um, you just reminded me of a of a point also around you know that inclusivity piece around people who are neurodiverse. So yes. perhaps they might have ADHD, you know, on the autism spectrum, etc. And you know, once again, it's not a matter of just giving people technology and off you go. It's actually really thinking about the implications for those individuals. You know, do they need some more support? In actual fact, perhaps being audio only for them and having mm -hmm. video off because of the, you know, the sensory overload is a better way for them to operate. And I think, you know, you sort of touched on this earlier, Vincent, around we need to move to a model across the board of personalization, right? And we tend to just almost put people in, in sheep pens, right? At this job level, you get this. At this job level, you get that. This location, you get this. And I think people don't want to be treated like that, right? <laughs> And you get the best out of people and people are most satisfied where they feel like their needs, values, purpose, goals are being, are being met. Yeah. And so it's about helping people thrive. And we have the technology to do that, right? Yes. That's our mission at Pymetric, exactly right? right? Help people find their best fit role where they're going to thrive, right? Um, what you're doing, right, around giving people the opportunity to work on the things that they love. Mm. And I think that we have the technology now to actually be able to support individuals. We don't have to have this broad brush stroke approach that everyone kind of gets the same thing because oh, it might be unfair to give people, some people one thing and something and, oh, I actually don't think that that's the case. I think mm -hmm. if people's needs are met, they're not necessarily worried about what others are getting, right? That's right. And, and we've seen that, I mean, in our lifetime, we've seen, you know, when... Uh, the television changed so much, uh, you know, and it's probably going to evolve after COVID massively again. Uh, but if you just look at over the last 30 to 40 years, uh, you know, 30 years ago, uh, you would tune in a few channels, you know, two, three channels, and people will tell you what to watch. So you won't have an option. This is the yeah. movie tonight, you're a kid, it's between 9 and 10 in the morning, and that's it. You know, you miss, the, you miss it, you're done. Uh, today, uh, you know, Netflix is, is, or Disney Plus or all the others, uh, AI is really enabling you with your personalized profile to have recommendations that come up that actually really work. And I was quite surprised because, you know, it, it takes a bit of time for, for the AI to really get uh, what you like. But once they get it, every time it's a hit. You know, that 99% yeah. match, you watch it, you're like, yeah, I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so what if jobs could be like this? What if projects could be like this, right? Yeah. Uh, that would change tremendously what we think, and specifically to, to our last point uh, on this slide, the, the difference that I touched upon earlier between linear thinking and exponential thinking, you know? Um, we've been, over our course of our life, really in, in mostly a linear world where the pace of what happened tomorrow is the same as yesterday, right? So therefore, uh, you know, everything is predictable to some extent. So you can therefore have, you know, a team composed of a, a fixed number of people, a fixed job description, uh, a fixed supply chain, all, 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 all the things that, you know, you can predict because you've been there for a long time. But today with COVID, with the fires in Australia, climate change, recession, all those big challenges, nothing is linear. Right? And so if you apply the same thinking of like, it's not going to change and it's going to be at the same pace, 
you're just going to end up missing the mark all the time. And so that uh, in itself is really changing the way, uh, the way people operate. We've seen Agile, you know, being one of the response. But the issue with Agile between, you know, if you look at the banks and insurance companies or units, but also startups, is that they have the same issue. You know, collaboration is still missing. So what you do with Agile, and you look at Spotify as a good example, uh, for software engineers, it's perfect. When you own end-to-end something, you can deliver it. But when you start having those teams that need to collaborate, there's still the missing piece of, well, how, how do we do this? Because we're really good at doing this, but when you deploy this new software, we don't really know because we have to talk to others. Right? And usually we're in our squad, and we're very efficient in our squad. And actually, the less we talk to others, the more efficient we are. Right? So... <laughs> So that's the paradigm where basically you end up having the same situation as a large corporate where everything takes ages to happen because of uh, the lack of collaboration as well. So yeah. this is still not, uh, you know, solved uh, in an exponential world and in thinking because this is mainly done for, for linear, uh, although it seems to be, uh, you know, the new thing. Yeah, yeah. People skills will never will never go away. In actual fact, the more technology we have, the more that they are implemented. Those human skills, right? There's the ability yes. to collaborate, to be creative, innovative. You know, listen to to others. All of you know, all of those sorts of things are actually being amplified. Um, and we need to you know support people around that. Yeah. So we should probably well, open up for some yeah. questions. Let's I think. Look at questions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so um, we. Uh, we, I see we do have a functionality to uh, allow people to ask their questions uh, by voice. So uh, if you would like to do that, please uh, use the raise your hand feature and then we can call on you. Um, but uh, right now we already have uh, two uh, very relevant questions that are in the Q&A. So I will just start to read out the first one just so everybody can uh, hear it. Um, the World Economic Forum predicts that around 75 million jobs will be displaced as AI and other technologies are deployed. How can we navigate this challenge in light of the fact that this process has now been accelerated by COVID-19? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to start if you want, Michelle. Yeah, um, so the 75 million uh, is in aggregate. And I think here that's the key word. So AI, robotic automation is replacing tasks, right? Now, when you de-aggregate the jobs that we have into tasks, you see that pretty much 60%, 70% of those tasks can be fully automated. And that's where the, you know, the, the pile goes, okay, well then in aggregate, it means that you know, 75 million of jobs will be displaced. But that's not the case. It means that actually most jobs, so maybe 80, 90% of jobs, will have a part of automation. But the ones that could be fully automated are only 10%. And they tend to be mostly in manufacturing or uh, you know, in, in frontline uh, operators. Some of those jobs will be completely displaced, no doubt about it. But others, and that's the challenge that we're facing, and that's when the exponentiality of it is critical. Because others will have 20%, 25 30% of the job that, are, that is not needed, but the 70% is still needed, right? And you still wanna keep those people. So again, if you're stuck into the paradigm of having someone one or zero, then you have someone for 70% of the time. And so that's where you know, internal talent management uh, and, and internal mobility and, and democratizing this will unlock all these, all these possibilities. And we're not too far from this. We're probably a, a few years away 
from already having, uh, you know, RPA is not new. Robotic process automation has been around since the 90s. And you talk to anyone who's, uh, you know, uh, in accounting or, or finance, uh, they're experiencing this at the moment. And what they see is, uh, you know, people come in and say, well, we're going to get rid of probably 10% of jobs. And that, it, that is hardly the case. You get a lot of people that are more productive and have less time in the office, but often it, it doesn't take out the full job. So that's the, the big difference that, uh, that I see. Yeah, yeah, agree. And, I, and I'll just add another point. I think the clients that we're talking to are actually welcoming the automation of those more, you know, repeatable tasks so that their teams can actually work on higher value add, right? More creative activities, the activities that you simply can't automate with, with AI. And so, you know, it seems like, you know, some employees are concerned, but, you know, leaders are not as concerned because they can see the potential for their teams yep. to actually, you know, deliver even, even greater outcomes um, for the business as they're freed up from those more manual yep. tasks. Well, actually, funny enough, uh, a few days ago, we were talking to, uh, to a team because we we're also doing some work on the impact of this technology on every job. And so we're deploying that with, with a large uh, organization in New Zealand. That, uh, and we were talking to the, uh, to the finance team. And, 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 and most of those guys were saying, well, we are welcoming RPA because we are doing so many of those tasks that we don't have time, like some others, to do those interesting projects. So right. if that's possible for us, please bring the machine, you know? We want them to take our tasks. Uh, and right. sometimes they're really painful tasks to do that a machine could do uh, way faster than, than a human. Uh, right. So then we can free up some capacity for those people. And they're like, look, we want to help the organization and be more, um, you know, the advisors of uh, some parts of the business as opposed to be on the receiving end of all the problems that people have mm. with finance and all the other things. So uh, I agree, it's not just leaders, it's also uh, employees and, and it's leaders' job to actually um, you know, paint the right picture about this uh, and to capture the benefit what they really are. And sometimes mm. they're way more than just getting rid of one FTE. Correct, correct, agree. We have a second question. Um, interested to hear about how we navigate the challenges with bias in the hiring process with AI. We know that large organizations are deploying these technologies more and more. How can we ensure that this is done in an ethical way? I can take that one. Yeah, sure. So I think that, you know, the key element here when you're using AI in hiring is to ensure that you, the algorithms are fair. And a big part of what we do, because fairness is really our, our North Star, is, is to ensure that our algorithms are de-biased, right? So we check the algorithms when we build them to ensure that they are fair again for, um, you know, gender and, and ethnicity, etc. And um, what that means is that, you know, we are more confident that, you know, we will be able to support the diversity efforts of, you know, of organisations. So it's really crucial that any algorithm actually, no matter what, what it is, whether it's in, for insurance, for example, that those algorithms are de-biased to ensure that you're not disproportionately impacting, um, you know, certain groups in a way that was simply unintended in the first place. I don't think anyone intends to build an algorithm that is biased, but I think um, that can sometimes be an unintended consequence if you're not actually monitoring um, that, you know, that algorithm upfront in terms of the, the bias and then monitoring post deployment as well from a real world perspective around how has the algorithm actually performed from a fairness perspective. Um, so I think, you know, the, those steps are absolutely crucial. And that's where I think, um, you know, when, uh, I remember when I was in corporate, uh, one of the, the, the key thing was to train up the HR teams. Uh, 
because mm -hmm. most often that's not in that area that the data scientists are located. Although uh, Frontera was, it was the case, like the uh, Joe who's on the call here set up that function with uh, analytics in there, uh, which was very, uh, very smart to, to have those data scientists in HR. And, and that actually paid a, a, a lot to have them there because they were trying to see those kind of things. So very ethical and understand the implications specifically on recruitment that a, a traditional data scientist might not see, or if they're part of another part of the business, they might actually not see it. And again, not, uh, not by anyone's fault, uh, right. but just because it's not the way they, they would think and they, they won't see uh, some of the, the, the subtleties there. So Amazon was a great example where they deployed that and uh, uh, you know, they didn't look at this, but they were keeping hiring, you know, white males from uh, from Harvard and, and other, uh, you know, Ivy League schools because that's that was the profile of people that were successful. But Correct. that doesn't mean that others were not successful. It means that the data set was the wrong one. Correct. Correct. Yeah, you absolutely have to look at your data set. And then, you know, if, if they had debiased their algorithm, they would have found, oh, hang on a second, it's only, high, it's only recommending males, right? Exactly. So they didn't kind of check, although I don't know if they confirmed the story necessarily, but it has done the rounds. Of course, but sure. Amazon would never confirm. They never talk to, to, the, to the press anyway. <laughs> true, true. Okay, so we have, oh, sorry, go on. Oh, you know, you go, William. I was going to say, uh, we have a question from Mufadal. Welcome uh, back, Mufadal. He was one of our previous panelists. Uh, are companies studying how much of their staff can now be replaced by technology or cheaper resources or sitting in a cheaper location? Yes, uh, definitely. And, and you see a lot of, uh, you know, in the freelancing space, Upwork is one of the leader uh, based in the U.S. Uh, in terms of uh, providing workers that are based in any parts of the world that are cheaper than the part you're in. But their whole premise was like, what, you can have your headquarters in San Francisco, but what, what do you need to hire people that are from there, right? You can have someone very good that's based somewhere else, but you can pay someone way cheaper. I, I think that that's going to that's gonna increase. Um, uh, I, I don't think the, 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 the trend is necessarily bad. Um, but I think the quality is what people are, are, are dealing with. So if you go on Upwork, you know, the experience is you get a hundred, a thousand people uh, that apply and, and the price is very cheap. So it, it just doesn't really do justice to, to, the, to the job and the task at hand. Uh, so, so I think there is, um, there is more than just the cost to serve. Uh, there is probably also the quality. And again, it doesn't mean that you need to be located in the same area. And the conversation that we had before, I think uh, policymakers and, and government will have to, to step in and put some uh, some boundaries probably in some of it uh, to ensure the right behavior is, uh, is, is promoted. I think you know, Josh said another point. I think organizations are always looking for ways, effective ways to manage costs. And one of the biggest costs is personnel. Um, and so there, you know, there was a, a massive shift at one stage for offshoring, you know, a lot of Australian businesses were offshoring to, you know, to Bengaluru, to Manila, etc. And then now those locations have also been disrupted by automation and technology and, and you know, and, and some of the cost savings that are available there. And, and, you know, part of that is also around, you know, ensuring that these businesses are sustainable. Right, so they can actually employ individuals um, and also shareholder return, right? And I think unless we change that sort of business model around, you know, providing, um, you know, value to shareholders, etc., there will always be that need to ensure profit. 
um, and businesses will need to, you know, to pull the relevant levers to actually, um, you know, support support those goals. And, and part of that will definitely be around people they have. And also, you know, competitive advantage that can be brought by having different talent actually, you know, take on different opportunities as well. I think if, if we move away from, uh, you know, looking for the cheapest, uh, uh, we'll get a huge amount of diversity that comes from so many different countries that will solve those uh, big problems that we have within organizations. Uh, but if, if the mindset is only cost uh, at all costs, then uh, we'll end up in the right race and, and, and no one wins, basically. Uh, I think if I'll just add an additional question on the the quality tech measures uh, to monitor staff performance. I'm aware of, uh, in terms of recruitment, so to recruit tech people, there are a few platforms now that are doing some really robust testing in terms of the, 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 the performance ongoing within staff. I don't know if Michelle, you do that a bit with Pymetrics, but I haven't heard um, many companies deploying that across uh, and being successful at measuring the, the real performance uh, in mm. the tech sector? Mm. I mean, we do, we do studies with our clients uh, when they deploy biometrics around the impact that we've been able to have on quality. Um, mm. And, you know, we've had some really, you know, fantastic results in, in that regard because, you know, because of the algorithms that we build or the success models that we build are very much focused on solving the challenges that the client has at the point in time. And it would be specifically around particular performance measures, attrition, you know, what is it that's um, keeping, you know, the business up at night from a yes. talent perspective? And so, because we're very, you know, laser focused on that, then, you know, we see some really strong results. And so, that's a way that we certainly support our clients to, to measure the improvement in talent, you know, through the technology that, um, that you know, we're, we're deploying. That's, you know, that's our approach in that. Yeah, and I think that the, the tech is quite, um, it's quite hard because it's a science, but it's also an art. Uh, you know, coding, you can, you can code something and the thing looks and feels the same but the code is, is very complex and, and can break multiple times uh, as opposed to a smart way of coding uh, that some, some coders have and, and, and they make something way simpler, that works faster. Uh, there's also, you know, if you look at design within, within an app, for example, is it something you can really measure? I mean, you can measure that by the number of people that are using it, or your UX, UI. Uh, I think there are a lot of different metrics uh, to, to take into account, but um, but I'm not aware of one that, that basically takes all and, and give a rating score yet. So we have uh, another question. How are countries in the APAC region evolving with AI? Is Asia still ahead? How can we encourage more collaboration as in not leaving other regions behind? Interesting question. Yeah, I think, oh, I might start quickly. I know that, you know, certainly we've been doing a lot of work um, with the Singapore government in particular around um, the, you know, the frameworks for, um, for AI and, and, you know, Singapore have really differentiated themselves. I think when when AI really started to come to the fore, um, you know, we have World Economic Forum, we have, and we have, you know, every single government practically with, you know, um, Australian Human Rights Commission as well, we've done some work with them, you know, all coming up with ethical frameworks. And I think what, you know, the Singapore government did was said, well, that's great, we can have all of these ethical frameworks, but how do you actually do this? Right? And so um, they put together, you know, a really fantastic, um, you know, 
set of guidelines with practical examples around how do you ensure, you know, ethical AI, how do you ensure fairness, transparency, um, you know, and, and, and those sorts of things. And, and, you know, we've been, you know, collaborating with them on, on those guidelines. And now they're moving to the next version, right, in terms of how do we bring this to life, you know, even more. And so I think they've certainly been very, very progressive um, in that arena. I think each, you know, location and each government is, um, you know, is doing their best to ensure that, um, this is a very new field, you know, the Australian Human Rights Commissioner is very much focused on the human rights around AI. And what does that mean? You know, there's been a lot of talk around the, the divide between the haves and the have-nots will grow even more so because of AI um, and some concerns around that. And, and, you know, what we were talking about earlier around bias and algorithms, right? Yes. What does that mean if someone's going for um, insurance? Or I think there was even some, some talk, there was a study done in, I think it might have been the US, where they found that um, the, there was, uh, the AI had something in the algorithm that disadvantaged people of African-American origin so that their illnesses weren't, didn't, weren't deemed as serious as those from white people and so they weren't getting as many health benefits. And, you know, there's all these sorts of human rights considerations. So I think there are lots of different lenses as we all try to navigate our way through, you know, what AI actually means um, for the implications on, you know, on individuals and, and the businesses that, you know, employ these individuals and, and you know, support our economies. So, yeah, and, and those frameworks are, are critical. I mean, in, in terms of, uh, you know, is Asia leading? I think China is definitely leading the world in terms of AI. Uh, you know, the, the, the power of AI resides in the number of people and the number of users that, uh, that the AI can basically uh, learn from, right? And so that's why, you know, companies like Facebook and others in the US uh, have made us work for free for them. Uh, you know, each time we go on social media and like something, comment, uh, we're doing some work for free, uh, which, you know, is never labeled as work. Obviously, it's fun. It's, you know, share a picture, you like it. Um, but, but that's feeding the algorithm. Now, it's, it's a lot of people, two, three, four hundred million people. But, you know, a country like China has way more people there uh, that are using technology in, in, in very different ways uh, and, and feeding the AI at a, a much faster pace than anyone else. And so, that, uh, to, to answer the question on, on that, I think that that's definitely there. Uh, and we see a lot of application uh, in China. Um, things are working way faster as well. And again, th there is, uh, you know, it's pace and, and ethics, basically, right? So uh, the more you want to capture information to feed the machine, the more uh, privacy, um, you know, limitation you, you might hit or, or say, well, look, what, what was private today, you know, it's different to tomorrow, so we can go further there for the, the, the benefit of, of the machine. Uh, and that's an interesting debate. And, and you know, Michelle, you, you mentioned that you're doing some work in Singapore and other countries. I think that's going to be critical and, and vital going forward that we, we keep a sense of, of, of privacy uh, while computers are, are getting smarter. So we have another question. Which country would you say has the best policies in place to enable the future of work? I'll hand over to you, Vincent, for that one. Yeah. Um, I think that there are a few countries that, uh, that have put things in place uh, in terms of the future of work. Uh, I mean, the UN just released something. It's not really a country, but uh, it will definitely inform policies uh, I know France was very ahead in some aspect of it, 
Uh, I know New Zealand, Australia, uh, we're doing some work there. I mean, in New Zealand, we had the Business Advisory Council that the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern uh, had put together to uh, really a task force specifically focusing on the future of work. So McKinsey did a study there and, and really get, get some numbers around jobs, displacement, skills that were needed. Uh, so 700,000 jobs gone, 900,000 jobs uh, created in the next five to 10 years in aggregate. Uh, what are the skills that are needed? So uh, a, a lot of focus has been put in, in there. I think it's still early days. Uh, and I think, like we said before, uh, future of work was important, but never really urgent. And, you know, there's future in it. So people are, well, it's not today. Um, I, I think what we're seeing is that um, it's today now, it's even yesterday. Uh, and, and so countries uh, are, are starting to, to realize uh, that they need to do something uh, a bit broader in that area. So there were um, two questions raised in the, uh, in the United Nations article, um, and I'd love to get your thoughts on, on them. The first question is, to what extent will the pandemic entrench rising inequality that's a big question. And the, and the second one is, how does mental health play into the re remote work environment? Are there mm -hmm. concerns that we should be having and dealing with? Mm -hmm. so I might start with the mental health one because I think mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's something that I'm you know, personally very passionate about as a psychologist. Um, and you know, we are seeing uh, massive increases in burnout right now um, with employees and organizations are very concerned. Um, there was um, something I was reading, you know, just even today around some um, research from, you know, from Monash University that they just, uh, just completed saying that, you know, a third of workers are saying they're experiencing severe psychological stress during COVID. And that can be for a range of reasons such as, you know, social isolation, which you know, there's a reason why solitary confinement is used as a punishment, right? People are um, collaborative, right? They, they are social creatures and, you know, being isolated from others, you know, is very stressful. But in addition, then you've got, you know, the financial stress, people losing their jobs or hours being reduced um, or, you know, pay cuts. Um, you've got job insecurity then for those who do have jobs. Um, and so, you know, people now as they've sort of started to adapt a little bit to this, you know, new normal, are also now concerned about returning to work, right? Mm. What happens if, as we return to the office, there is a spike, right? There is an increase in, you know, in COVID cases again, um, and is my job still secure? So we have, we've always had a very stressful, I think, you know, working, working life. Um, and now those, you know, those, those stresses have, have increased. And so there are a lot of resources now that governments are actually releasing to help businesses identify psychological stress and actually intervene and provide strategies to actually support, um, you know, support individuals. And so, you know, as I said earlier with, you know, work, burnout, um, you know, increasing because of juggling work and children at home, as you mentioned earlier, Vincent, and all of the other, you know, demands that, that you know, that go along with that as well. Um, there, there are, some are saying that we are on the precipice of a major psychological crisis amongst, mm. you know, that, population right now so I'm personally really you know concerned about that from a health and well-being perspective and I think that you know organizations absolutely will have to have a massive part to play I think governments as well in terms of healthcare facilities challenges a lot of the burnout is from our frontline 
responders as well. Um, but we will definitely need more resources to support people's psychological well-being. And I think part of that could be supported by greater flexibility, right? If people are just not feeling like they can work that day, actually, it's okay to take a mental health day, right? Just be and, and feeling psychologically safe to actually say to their manager, hey, you know what, I just actually, I just need a day. And the manager saying, that's absolutely fine, you go for it, right? Yeah. And so I think that, you know, a greater compassion for each other, that human connection that we're all craving, we now need to show that empathy, um, you know, certainly to each other. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Uh, we've, we've had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, cases of people really being stressed working from home for multiple reasons, but, uh, you know, from family, uh, you know, uh, the setup, the, the the technology, all the rest of it, but also the, the the sense of not really being like being left out, maybe like a minor part of all conversations. Because in the office, I can see when there is a meeting and there is no no meeting, so I know that I'm part of all the important conversation. But am I on the right Zoom? You know, I hear people that are ten hours back to back on Zooms, and I, and I'm not. Am I missing out? Am I doing something wrong? Um, interesting thing though uh, is today on on the call with with the few companies that we were on. Uh, they looked at the sick leave and uh, across uh, you know, the month and a half that we were uh, in, um, in isolation, the, the number dropped drastically, right? So uh, they don't really fully know yet why, uh, but sick leave uh, historically has been you know, at a certain level and, and for a month and a half was almost at zero. Uh, and so what, was it because people were staying home and therefore less exposed to uh, uh, you know, other things? Uh, probably less stressful for some or, or others. Uh, so that that's the that's the study that now companies are starting to do and say, well, look, uh, if people are less sick, it's actually probably better to to to, to leave leave them, um, you know, work wherever they want. Uh, and there is this movement starting to to be created of like uh, companies trying to move for from agnostic location. Uh, and so the work should be done from anywhere. It doesn't mean that we remove an office. Uh, it just means that we allow people to, to, to work in different places. Uh, and that will change uh, the way our offices are built. That will change what we need to build um, and, and how we will, as a society, uh, interact with each other. I, I think the, the, the major issue that I see, though, is our brains is n are not really designed for uncertainty and constant uncertainty, right? Mm. So in the military, uh, we train a lot on this. Uh, because as you can imagine, I mean, we plan for a mission, but then when you're dropped somewhere, it, it, it's all different, no matter how much you plan, I mean, you still have to plan. Um, but, uh, but we train a lot for, uh, to, to try to be at our best when everyone is not. Uh, and, and, and that's quite, uh, that requires a lot of training, uh, and also very stressed, but, but the, the human brain is not made to be consistently, uh, you, you know, worried. And that's why, you know, from early days of humanity, uh, people gathered together. Yes, because they can kill more things and eat more, but also because there is more certainty within the group. And you're like, well, if we, you know, can I sleep now and you protect me? Right, thanks, I can sleep. Otherwise, uh, I don't stay uh, alive a, a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was a first okay. part to that question. Yes, it was uh, about rising inequality in COVID-19. Will COVID-19 entrench, further entrench the rising inequality? Well, we've seen examples uh, of, you know, both New Zealand, Australia, but also the US uh, that I know of, uh, of uh, government or, or wealthy individuals sending laptops 
you know, to, uh, to a lot of kids uh, that wouldn't have a laptop otherwise. Uh, I think in New Zealand, we hit like 90% of, of kids now have a laptop and can connect to school. Uh, I think, again, because there was a problem and that need to be solved, everyone kind of went there and, and solved that. So I think in, in some aspect, I think uh, inequality will, will be solved uh, and people will have access to, uh, to, to technology. Um, but uh, it doesn't mean that for every country, uh, it, it's going to be the case. Right. Uh, I don't know how they, they managed to do a full lockdown in India, for example. Uh, but the population is massive, uh, and a lot of people, uh, you know, are, are working on a hourly right or a daily right to be able to afford food. And if you can't go out and work, uh, food is not going to come to you. So um, it would be interesting to see uh, how uh, a lot of countries are dealing with this. We're quite lucky here, you know, five million people, Australia, twenty-five. Uh, you know, it's, it's manageable, uh, but other countries uh, have way bigger problems. Uh, and so COVID-19 uh, will definitely have a devastating effect uh, that we're just starting to see. I mean, everyone is predicting that it will take us between three to seven years to go back to the normal uh, economy that we had uh, before COVID, right? I mean, if you're in the, the airline industry, it's not tomorrow that all the flights will be back the way, you know, no one's going to fly as much as we, we were flying before. So, so that's going to be interesting in terms of inequality as well um, for all different countries. So we are getting uh, close to the end of our time together now. Um, so I would like to ask uh, one final question as well as uh, let that segue into any closing messages you may have for us. So the last question is a little bit more on a personal basis. How does one prepare themselves for the future of work? Are the skills that lead to success today the same ones that will lead to success in the future? Are there skills or behaviors that lead to success today that may be detrimental in the environment of the future? Um, I might start, Vincent. Yes. So I think that, you know, organizations, predominantly, certainly from, you know, the organisations that we speak to have, you know, focused traditionally on, you know, a set of technical skills that they've felt they've needed to be able to compete in this digital world, right? We need coders. We need people with STEM skills, you know, and, they were, and, and, and we need more, you know, more technologists. And so there's been a, a real focus um, around, you know, technical capabilities. I think what we're now seeing is this shift to actually what we really need to focus on are behavioural skills, right, or behaviours. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people who are, you know, learning agile, people who are persistent, um, you know, resilience, I think, is something that comes up a lot. Resilience is a learned skill, so you can, you know, you certainly can, can learn that. Um, but the types of, you know, behavioural capabilities that people have that enable them to, you know, to learn and thrive and adapt in this changing environment is really what's going to actually support people going, going forward. Curiosity, right? Um, willingness to be humble, you know, and, and, say, and say, I don't have all the answers, but you know what, I'm going to go and find out. Right. Um, those are the sorts of attributes that are going to help people to, you know, survive in, in, this, in this future world of work. I think, you know, as you, know, you mentioned, Vincent, people are naturally fearful of change and it's more because they're worried about what they're going to lose, right? Not, not, necessarily, not necessarily there'll be some, you know, wonderful gains that they can make, but they're often worried about what am I going to lose that I really, you know, treasure and, and hold true. And I think that, um, you know, if people aren't 
I guess, on board in terms of, you know, being able to, you know, develop these new capabilities. Um, the technical skills can be taught, right? You just need to be open um, to those. And so that openness, curiosity, learning agility, all of those sorts of capabilities absolutely will be required for the future. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Uh, I think resilience, um, you know, massive skill there uh, and adaptability, those two are, are, are critical to, uh, to continue to, to, to learn or, or, or to master uh, if, if, if possible. Um, but also uh, passion, right? Uh, I, I think we are, we are getting into a world where it will be possible to start selecting the things you want to do and, and make a living out of this. Uh, there are tons of ways to learn, you know, uh, online without leaving your house. You can learn so much. Uh, it again comes down to mindset. You know, everything is hard. Yes, there is no easy way ever. Uh, but, uh, but I think now and in the future more than ever, if you just wait for things to happen, uh, they are less likely to happen. You know? uh, if we move into this world where you know, it's more like the Netflix of things where you, you select, if you don't select, things won't come to you. Right? If you stay idle. Well, yeah, well, things will happen to you that you don't want to happen yeah. to you. Well, exactly. Yeah, you will be left so behind. Exactly. So you're going to be at the front of the curve, you know, and no one's going to do it for you. Um, you know, from a career development perspective, from an internal mobility perspective, um, if you want something, you do need to put yourself out there and, and, and go for that. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the saying, you know, if you, if you don't make a decision, you're actually making a decision, yeah. right? Because something will happen anyway. So you may as well drive that decision. And it's the law of numbers, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, you, you see countries that uh, have moved fully digital now, uh, if you said, look, I'm never going to use a computer because I can do my basic stuff without a computer. In many countries, it's just not possible anymore because enough people have moved. You know, it's like this yeah. herd immunity, but like for, for other things. Enough people online, well, 5%, they, they'll, get, they'll get online. And so, uh, so I think for work, it will be the same. As soon as we start moving and, and people see benefits, uh, again, in the next five years, we'll see a lot of flexible. Um, I think COVID-19 is not gone and it, and it won't be for, for a period. And that's one, uh, you know, virus. There are plenty of others. Uh, there are plenty of other problems with climate change that will happen to us. Uh, so so I, I think the future is brilliant and it's scary at the same time. Um, but, um, but we're humans, you know, we, we've survived uh, because we didn't stay idle. So yes. uh, there is no change there. Agreed. Agreed. Well, it looks like a good time to uh, wrap up. We're right on time. I wanted to say thank you first to all of our attendees. And thank you for the great questions that you've asked. Uh, thank you to Vincent and Michelle for sharing uh, everything that you did today. Um, so with that, we will sign off. Any last, uh, any last words? For having us, uh, it, it was really. I mean, when when we met with Michelle, we're like, "Yep, yeah, it's going to be a good time. <laughs> we're going to have a good time." Uh, and and so, uh, thank you very much. To, to your point, for the 14, 15, or sixteen people that, that turn up and you know listen to us for an hour and a half, uh, probably mostly you know at night or, or uh, evening. Um, so thanks. I, I I mean I hope that you know um, it uh, we were interesting enough. <laughs> not many people have dialogue before the, the time uh, and thanks to, to you guys for the AI uh, Asia Institute Asia Pac Institute to, to have us tonight
Agreed. Yeah, thank you for facilitating this. I think we've had fun anyway. And, um, you know, reach out to us on LinkedIn. I'm sure Vincent's happy to, and I'm certainly happy to, you know, continue conversations with, with anyone who we're very passionate about. We could keep talking, right? <laughs> Except Vincent has to get up, I think, at 3am. So, um, yeah, very happy to, you know, continue any conversations. And, and thank you. I think we've had a lot of fun. Yes. Thank you so much, everyone. Okay. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye.